Chief, look, before you make any decisions, you've got to look at this stuff. This is the map that I told you about. Right here is the route. Right here. I got names and addresses of people. Like, th these are the letters. These are just some of the letters. Chief, I'm telling you, there's something going on here. Something big is going on, more than anyone even guessed. This isn't a, a, a group of people uh, standing around yelling nigger and kike and uh, it's big. This, this is a goddamn movement. This is, they got organization, they got money, they got resources I wish the fuck Jerry, we had. Jerry, not now. Let's deal with first things first, like keeping you on this case. Now, to do that, I'm gonna need some help. Some ammunition only you can provide. I've set up an appointment with a Dr. Krantz, one of the department psychiatrists. You convince him you're okay, you're on the next flight out. Four o'clock this afternoon, don't be late and don't fuck it up. For those who um, <clears throat> are tuning in, got to say a couple of things first off. Uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, white supremacy and how in film... Uh, not exactly sure what we're going to call this show yet, but I think it's important to point out a couple of things going in. First of all, there might be some four little words said here. Second of all, some people might be politically offended, and I really don't give a damn. Um, there might be some who, because we might say some things about the previous administration, uh, inspiring a few things or making the ground fertile for certain things. And if you don't like it, then that's why on the eighth day, God created the mute button, the scroll function, <laughs> and the on and off switch along with free will. So <laughs> put those in effect if you don't like what we're saying. And I'm sure there are many other podcasts and other shows and threads and what have you and message boards where, who will not agree with what we're saying here. So I think it's very important to say that. How this got started uh, about a week or so ago, uh, every now and then on Facebook, I'll post a little something about a film that I haven't watched in a few years and uh, say a, a little background information on the film. Last week it was John Frankenheimer's film, uh, 1989 film, Dead Bang, which was probably one of the lesser known and lesser appreciated Frankenheimer films. But it was just amazing to me because rewatching it for the first time in a few years and the plot of the film, Don Johnson is uh, plays a cop. Yes, Miami Vice is Don Johnson, and he's actually not bad in the film. He plays a cop who's loosely based on a real cop, and the story opens with a robbery and murder at a convenience store. The Don Johnson cop gets on the case, and it eventually leads to larger things, including him uncovering a network of formerly believed to be white supremacist yahoos, but he uncovers a network that shows that they have been coordinating into cells and a national network and that they've even been little by little and quietly and on the sly infiltrating local and state and maybe even federal government and law enforcement. And this film opened in March of 1989. And at that time, a lot of people didn't take it seriously. But watching it again last week, I was like, Jesus, this could have been filmed <laughs> this week. And especially in light of what went down on January 6th, we got into this discussion online about some other films, such as Clint Eastwood's Pink Cadillac, which, while primarily a light, humorous comedy, came out around the same time 
the same year, in fact, and also the villains in that film were white supremacists. And we mentioned films like Betrayed and Talk Radio, and another one which came to mind after we finished uh, talking was uh, Costa Guard versus Music Box also. And it didn't dawn on me, but those those five films all opened within a year of each other. Uh, They all opened between August 88 and, well, a little over a year, August 88 and December 89. So that was five films which dealt with the rising tide of white supremacy and neo-Nazism in America. And I was kind of wondering, wow, why do you think that happened at that time? So that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about how very often film and genre film, in some respects, can very often delve into topics that might be considered taboo or offensive or just plain uncomfortable, but uh, they're there. So that's where we're coming from. in your good old Mississippi boy stores, Anderson. You ain't from here no more. Uh-huh. Why'd you leave anyway? Well, I just wanted to change the scenery. You know, uh, the grits started leaving a bad taste in my mouth. Well, if that's how you feel about it, Mr. FBI, man, why don't you drink up that beer and get the hell on out of here and back to your commie nigger-loving bosses up north? Oh, you must not know my boss, Mr. Hoover. He's not too fond of commies. He'd be on your side there. I don't give two shits whose side your Mr. Hoover's on, boy. All I know is we got 5,000 niggers in this county who ain't registered a boat yet. And as far as I'm concerned, they never will. So you can tell your stiff suits up there in Washington, D.C. that they ain't gonna change us one bit. Unless it's over my dead body. Or a lot of dead niggers. You'd kill Frank? Is that what you're saying? I wouldn't give it no more thought than wringing a cat's neck. And there ain't a court in Mississippi that'd convict me for it. How about you, deputy? How you with wringing necks, huh? Just keep pushing me over, boy. Get this straight, you corn old fucker. You tell your queer-ass nigger bosses up north they ain't never gonna find them civil rightsers down here. So you might as well pack up your bags and head your ass on back up north where you belong. Wake up! Oh! And you get this straight, shit kicker. Don't you go mistaking me for some whole other body. You got your brains in your dick if you think we're just gonna fade away. We're gonna be here till this thing's finished. How about you, deputy? Is that gun just for show? Or do you get to shoot people once in a while? 
Uh, just one more thing I'd throw in too. I mean, uh, is uh, Mississippi Burning? Ah, yeah. Was, okay, exactly. Was in there. and and I mean, all the ones you've mentioned so far were all were all contemporary. Mm-hmm. And Mississippi Burning was a, was a period movie and inspired by a true yeah. uh, FBI investigation. It takes place in 1963, uh, which is not that right. Long so, long. It was, and it's and it's kind of like I mean, and it's not too different from how you know even even during the Obama administration when when uh, racism was becoming more publicly faced. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had movies like The Help to remind people that, you know, once upon a time here was a different part of the struggle. And I think as white supremacy was becoming more publicly faced in the late 80s and even into the early 90s, you know, a movie like Mississippi Burning comes out to remind people that, you know, we've had this fight before and we're having it again. So, exactly. I mean, yeah, it, it maybe doesn't belong in the, in the, in the five you listed since they're, since they're, you know, those were all contemporary, but it's also just, I think another one that, you know, w- was probably greenlit within the same, uh, Right, yeah. the same sort of zeitgeist. Well, yeah. you know, it's, it's funny because uh, dovetailing what you just said, how I wanted mm-hmm. to start things. I mean, we're certainly going to talk about those five films we mentioned in particular, but how I wanted to start was that um, on the show we did films everyone should watch before entering the voting booth. One of the things that was mentioned uh, when we were talking about the film 1776 was how a lot of people talk about how, um, boy, this division that is in America is something we've never seen before. And we were like, no, it's always been there since the very beginning of America. (laughs) And a film like 1776 very much got into that. Interestingly, I think a lot of people uh, forget that the whole idea of facing down fascism and white supremacy in film is not new either. That's been around as long as there has been film. And kind of it's the the popular consensus that a lot of historians say that Charlie Chaplin was the first one to deal with that topic in The Great Dictator, which opened in October of 1940. But the truth of the matter is the Three Stooges beat him to the punch. <laughs> and I rewatched those two Three Stooges shorts again. And again, just like when rewatching Dead Bang and saying, my God, you could have thought this was filmed last week. Uh, the Three Stooges in January 1940, their first short um, that dealt with it was You Nazi Spy, and that's N-A-T-Z-Y. And uh, that was the one where Mo was a Hitler-like leader of a nation of Moronica, you know? <laughs> and uh, he does a perfect Hitler, you know, and it's kind of interesting. But um, but interesting, so that was 1940, uh, January 1940, which beat Chaplin to the punch by a few months. And then... Uh, the second one where they uh, was sort of a sequel to that, and it was called I'll Never Hile Again. And that was released in July of 1941. And Mo, Larry, and Curly played the same three characters, and that was the first time the Three Stooges ever did a sequel to, you know, one of their original shorts. And interestingly, at the time, in 1940, and even when Chaplin did The Great Dictator, there still were a lot of people in the United States uh, which who had that isolationist view that everyone knew what was going on over in Europe. Everyone knew what Hitler was all about because everyone had remembered the beer hall pushed, you know, and, and he had written Mein Kampf. And every, it, it, there was no doubt as to what Hitler was all about, but there were still people in the United States who didn't want to get involved or just felt it wasn't our business. And there were a lot of corporations, cor- people in corporate positions who didn't necessarily disagree with what he was all about. And I think that's one of the great shames of American industrial history. But it's there. Um, So a lot of people were criticized uh, for speaking out against fascism and against Hitler in particular. In fact, the first issue of Captain America in March 1941. It's a famous cover now where he's socking Hitler across the face. That was in March of 1941. That was, you know, 
so many months before the attack on Pearl Harbor. When that issue came out, a lot of people attacked Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. I'm sorry, not Stan Lee, but Jack Kirby. Stan Lee wasn't involved back then. Uh, attacked Jack Kirby and the others for not taking an isolationist tone. But the battle against fascism was always there, whether it was in Captain America comic books, whether it was the Three Stooges, and this is before, or Charlie Chaplin, and this is before America officially entered the war. After America entered the war, of course, you had Ernst Lubitsch's To Be or Not To Be, you know, which opened in February 42. And then even after the war, everyone knew that fascism and this white supremacist movement was still lurking in between the lines of post-war America because another movie that we had mentioned during that every movie you should see before entering the voting booth, The Farmer's Daughter which opened in 1947, and how what really grabbed my attention about that film, which is a light rom-com with a very searing political subtext, was the scene where somebody is called out, somebody who's running for office is called out, and he's kicked out of the house, and someone says, they throw their coat after him, and they say, oh, you forgot your hood, you know, because this guy's all about, quote-unquote, America first, and uh, all about curbing immigration and all about people who are more American than others. And then it even dawned on me Ian Fleming's novel, Moonraker, which was written in 1955, which very unlike the film, which is more inspired by the Star Wars Close Encounters craze of the late 70s, um, in the novel, Hugo Drax is a neo-Nazi. I mean, literally, he's a neo-Nazi. The whole idea is that he actually, he's a British industrialist, who we find out really isn't a British industrialist. It's a guy who was in World War II. He was injured, actually killed, and he was replaced kind of like in the man, almost a Manchurian candidate kind of thing. He was kind of, well, seven days, well, it's kind of a seven days in May Manchurian candidate kind of thriller, the novel Moonraker, and where this Nazi spy was replaced or the boys from Brazil. Forgive me for, for not being entirely clear on this, but there's a guy named Hugo Drax who was injured. Well, he died during World War II. Um, the Germans sent in an imitation, uh, somebody who was spitting him into the sky. He was trained to replace him. Years later, he becomes this industrial magnate in England. The Corbamite King is what he's referred to as because of this uh, mineral that made him a self-made millionaire. And he becomes a backer of the British aerospace industry in the 50s. And we discovered, Bond discovers as he investigates him, that he is actually a neo-Nazi and that the Nazis have a plan to reestablish a fourth Reich. And the first step, the first uh, uh, um, volley fired in reestablishing this fourth Reich is Hugo Drax has been supporting a British ICBM program. And actually his plan is to use one of those ICBMs and fire it at London. And when London is destroyed in a nuclear attack, that will be the signal for all of the neo-Nazis around the world to rise again and finish what Hitler started. That's some terrifying shit. Okay, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> that is and written by a written by a you know passive Bond fans might also not recognize you know this wasn't this isn't just Fleming you know having fun with a you know doing a Hogan's Heroes. I mean Fleming ran commandos to fight Hitler. Exactly. Was, exactly. Right. I mean he was a spy himself. This is this is he knows of what he speaks. He's not just making stuff up for fun. Exactly. Yeah, so that yeah. was in 1955. So even yeah. after the war, 
everyone, there was still this underlying knowledge that fascism and neo-Nazism still existed in the capitalist West. So I just wanted to start with that just to say this is not new. Right. Just for a long time, I think a lot of people have chosen to ignore it and to, as was kind of mentioned in that posting, um, treat contemporary neo-Nazis, put them in the same category as the same people with aluminum hats. Uh, who are trying to communicate with aliens and talking about mut cattle mutilations and such. But that's where I wanted to start, the fact that, no, this is not new. Boom, okay. Mm -hmm. So, right. Jim, I've just kind of been bogarting the last few minutes, um, <laughs> I, and I apologize. Please mm -hmm. jump in and, 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 and say a little something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you know, and it, it, it's... it's uh... We're focused on film, but it was also in part of the discussion you and I had in your post about Dead Bang was that it was also just pop culture in general mm. at the moment, right? I mean, there was there was um, uh, casual racism of comedians like Sam Kinison and Dice Clay, which you know, Kinison, lucky for him, uh, you know, was lucky for well, it's a rude way to put it, but yeah, I mean, who knows where Kinison would be now if he hadn't been killed in a car accident. Mm -hmm. Right, like the the way the the backlash that he would have faced in the past decade, if not more. Uh, Dice Clay spent years trying to say, "No, no, it's just a character." And yeah, maybe it was a character, but let the character down every now and then. Mm -hmm. You know, Pee Wee Herman stops being Pee Wee Herman on occasion. Right. Um, and Dice just, you know, he kept every he just kept doubling down every time people kept saying, "Are you really doing that shit?" Mm -hmm. And um, uh, well, let me and, you know and. Okay, go, I'm sorry. Go but I was going to say, and not necessarily defending Kinison or Dice Clay. I mean, I do think that both of them are hilarious. Uh, yes. And I do agree with what you're saying because some of the greatest comedians of all time, like Lenny Bruce and Richard Pryor and George Carlin, for God's sakes, uh, or Robin Williams, they said a lot of shit that was politically incorrect or stuff that could be, could be construed as racist. However, every now and then, they did back up and do the self-deprecating thing to remind you that no that's not really me this is the character you know even freaking yeah, andy, like if, even andy kaufman for god's sakes you know <laughs> right you know like if, if dice was more savvy he could have made it clear that he was doing a blazing saddles exactly right that yeah. he's that he's doing he's playing this character to point out how stupid this all is and if he'd even just done that a couple of times yeah. carol o'connor uh, as archie bunker exactly yeah. yes yeah yeah, yeah. So, uh, it was, it was a thing, it was a, it was a mood that, that, you know, we, we started seeing in the late eighties. Um, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad you, I'm, I, you know, I thought I was the only one that even still thought of Pink Cadillac because it was so maligned among yeah, Eastwood, Eastwood fans. That, you know, I mean, it, it was, it was after he had done Bird, it was after he'd had a cons you know, nomination, or, or I think Bird even won, right? Yep. And all of a sudden, they're they're looking at him like, "What? Why are you backsliding?" Right, exactly. His and but that's also, you know, Clint used the hmm. the sugar of comedy to make a bitter pill go down. I agree. You know, he could have he could have made a Harry Callahan movie, mm -hmm. right? About, about 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 Nazis. Nazis, yeah. Right, but uh, and and would have been compelling. It would have been neat, but. Um, uh, yeah, this this movie just—it's. I didn't even know going into it that that's what the villain was going to turn out to be. Same here, same here. Right, like betrayed. We knew what it was. We knew yeah. from the trailer. Um, um, Dead bang. We we at least had a sense mm -hmm. 
even from the trailer, that's what we're going in for. But I mean, when they when when Clint sort of pulled the rug out from under me around the beginning of the second act, mm-hmm. uh, it was it was a surprise, but it also still felt totally organic for the time. Yeah, and it actually got me. I it, I remember getting more interested in the movie when that twist. You know, came. same here. I have. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Now, interestingly, um, Pink Cadillac was one of the first Eastwood films I had not seen at the movies. Uh, since the 1970s, and um, wow. yeah, I mean, it wasn't intentional. Um, I said, "Hey, it's a Clint Eastwood movie. I'll go see it." But for whatever reason, there just wasn't a sense. Yeah, you know, it's a light movie. It'll be on VHS mm-hmm. in a few months. I'll catch right. it then. And I actually first caught it like on HBO, um, and I watched it, and I was like, "Oh, damn! I should have saw this in the movies. This is really pretty good." And like mm-hmm. you, I enjoyed the humor. I mean, the movie opens with him as a bounty hunter doing the impersonation, yeah. and he captures the guy, and they're listening to Dolly Parton singing 9 to 5 mm-hmm. as he takes him into jail. You know, and it's fun. It's what you'd expect. It's kind of like a, maybe a cut above Smokey and the Bandit humor, you know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> But exactly. once, you know, uh, he tracks down Bernadette Peters, and we learn what she's running from, and that she has this money, which turned out to be counterfeit money, that her husband, who is a part of this white supremacist group, granted, not the most efficient and smart <laughs> group of white supremacists, but their leader is pretty scary and pretty dangerous. You know, he doesn't um, just, you know, turn them into idiots. Uh, well, they are idiots, but he ma- refers to them, he, he paints them as very dangerous idiots, kind of like January 6th. White Cross, no way. You two have put me on a very low budget level. Now, I tried to have some pamphlets made up cheaply. Waycross, why don't you come up here and take a look at this? Niggers, blah, 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 spicks, gooks taking our jobs, blah, 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 blah. Conspiracy of the Jews. It's not very good, Alex. Why don't you tell everyone why? Well, first off, the printing stinks. I mean, niggers is all blurred, and down here you got Jews running clear off into the margin. (laughs) (laughs) You got that right. (laughs) You think that's funny, Waycroft? Well, I mean, imagine. Trying to recruit new members with amateurish crap like this. There's no way, Alex. It's just... You are going to Silhouette City, man. (laughs) All right! All right! He's a warrior! Now I feel some unity. Now I feel some power. Not just a bunch of small-time car thieves, penny-anti-codeine junkies, wife-beaters, drifters, without a clue in this world, but warriors, ready to seize everything that's been denied them. And then, you know, movies like Mississippi Burning, uh, which were mostly critically lauded at the time mm-hmm. but then there was also you know because of some of the things that it changes for for history's sake 
there were those who said, well, you know, in the in the movie, you know, we have we have Gene Hackman basically solving the case by by romancing Francis information McDormand. out of somebody, uh-huh. right? And uh, versus in in real life, it was it was actually a um, most of that information came from an anonymous tip, mm-hmm. which is you know not as dramatically thrilling, but um, but the, I mean the fact that the fact basically I mean yeah there, there was a, there were even when there were complaints that well they kind of Hollywooded it up that still dragged out even more of the real more truth came out yeah uh-huh. right um, because there there were those who were who would do the work of saying well for accuracy's sake here's what really happened um, and it you know it, it which almost which kind of gives us two versions of the story instead of just one which well you uh, know uh, now that you mention it what comes to mind also around the same time. That's when station like the History Channel became very popular. Um, and Back when they actually did history. Yeah, yeah. And I, yeah exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, when they did history. And I remember one of my favorite shows back then, and I recorded a bunch of them, and I still go back to them time and time again, was uh, History versus Hollywood. And I remember recording episodes on A Bridge Too Far, The Boston Strangler, uh, Patton, Tora, Tora, Tora. And uh, yeah, so they totally got into that. And even though the show doesn't exist anymore, you do have a History versus Hollywood website um, where you can type in a movie, even a newer movie, and they have real history, and then on the other side, the film and how closely they, they lined up. And even though something like Unnecessary Burning Hollywooded it up a little, but I think it's important to say really no more than Lawrence of Arabia or The Great Escape right. or a lot of other movies Hollywooded it up, but we just don't think of that, you know. Um yeah, it's, it's still got its point across, as you said. You know, I like this. Let's just take a few minutes. Okay, right now we're talking, we're talking Pink Cadillac, Mississippi Burning. Let's just maybe take a couple of minutes, maybe not a lot, or go into detail about those movies that we mentioned. Pink Cadillac, Dead Bang, Betrayed, Talk Radio, Music Box. Because they all came out within, say, a year of each other. And I was kind of wondering, what do you think was going on in the subconscious zeitgeist at the time that caused this um, pileup of movies about that particular subject. When I was thinking about it, I was like, wow, um, it was around the end of the Reagan era. You know, he left office in 89. And not to say that Ronald Reagan was a fascist, you know. However, a lot of people had a problem with him being a union buster, and he was, you know. And I think a lot of people took his America, strong America, old school idealism and ran away with it and went apeshit with it, you know. And I think that at that time, you were starting to see a rise in ethnic pride. Yeah, we had had that in the 70s, but in the mid to late 80s, you had a pop culture movement where African-Americans, I mean, you know, you have um, Fear of a Black Planet. You know, once upon a time, that was sort of um, a sardonic statement, which kind of became prophecy. (laughs) You know, Um, you had more depictions of Asians and gays and women in general and Latinos in film and in pop culture were making a lot greater strides. And as often happens, whenever you have a group of people who have, quote-unquote, been in charge for a long time, 
starting to feel as though their ascendancy is slipping throughout history in various countries, including our own, you start to see a rise in supremacy and fascism, be it the post-Civil War era, um, where the Klan rose and, and, you know, uh, and became very powerful, uh, the post-World War II era, where a lot of African-American and Jewish and other veterans were trying to get their part of the American dream too. They had fought over in Europe and died and suffered, and they wanted their families to be able to buy homes in the suburbs, and they were met with a lot of resistance. You know, um, in the 80s, I, it, it, I think it was happening again, uh, very much uh, in the artistic, creative world, where with music and film and fashion and just pop culture in general, um, a lot of ethnic pride was finding itself being integrated into the mainstream. And I think, this is just a theory, of course. I've read no writings about this. This is just hmm. my personal theory. That I think a lot of people responded to that. And you had Ronald Reagan, who was talking about old school America. He didn't use the phrase, make America great again, but it was kind of along those lines. And I think a lot of people put two and two together, put one and one together, and came up with 11 <laughs> instead of two. And, and, and I think... That's where that underlying supremacist movement started to happen. And as the creative world is usually the first one to pick up on stuff, I I think they started responding to it. Uh, that's my theory anyway. Do you think that holds any water or am I just full I, of shit? I, abs- <laughs> I absolutely do. And and another part of it, I think, is that, that um, there was Reagan's generation, mm-hmm. and there was, you know, as 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 with now, there's the league of decrepit white men, uh, past retirement age, but who are still making the lion's share of the laws for us. Uh-huh. Um, and back then, there would have been Reagan, roughly the same age as all the you know Mitch McConnell and his gang now, mm-hmm. and then you would have the aging hippies. Okay. Who had right, 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 who, right, right? Who who are, are who are the who by the eighties would be the age you and I are right now, mm-hmm. right? And what are they looking at? And and some of them are you know one they're seeing the dream of the sixties dying, and two they are old enough to be film executives. And when they look at American youth, for the most part, they saw you know what everybody saw in the eighties was just, you know uh, uh, average kids. But another thing that we had skinheads. Mm. And skinhead bands, yeah, yeah, music, yeah, yeah, right. Like so, basically, it was. I mean, and 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 I think this is the difference between Reagan and Trump is that you know, Reagan never courted them, right, right. You know, they may have. Taken it was an entirely separate. Ran crazy with them, but he right. didn't appeal it was a, to them and try to. Right, yeah, exactly. It was an entirely separate thing, and you know, versus. I mean, I'll, I'll say, and like you were saying at the beginning, we might be saying some things that that people don't like. Well, fuck it, because you know, there were times where Trump was asked, "How do you feel about the Proud Boys? How do you feel about this group or that group?" Oh, I don't really know anything about them at all, but I hear they like me, so sure, whatever. Right, right, right. And I don't think Reagan would do that. I don't either. If somebody had said, "Hey, did you hear about skinheads who are stomping somebody? You know, they're 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 just beating people down in the middle of the street." I don't I don't think even if Reagan hadn't heard about it. I, th- I could imagine the look on his face and going, "What the hell is this in America?" Yeah, exactly. Nazis? Yeah, uh, yeah, and 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 so 
I, I feel like part of the way some of this might have even gotten greenlit in the first place was you've got executives who would be our age now, who would be aging hippies, who would see this this subset, which was, you know, wasn't a late 80s thing. Skinhead music and, you know, I mean, that was rising in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. And it um, talk radio is, is uh, um, I, I didn't know this going into the movie. I knew it was a play from Eric Bogosian, but I didn't know that he had, part of his inspiration was... Um, an actual uh, Alan Berg, Alan Berg, yeah. and it was a deed. It was a book about him called the Talk Talk to Death. Yep. I think the Life and Murder of yeah. Alan Berg. Yep, yep, yeah. And uh, so, who was murdered by uh, white supremacists? Yes, yeah. the Jewish radio, uh, like a shock jock who was uh, murdered by white supremacists. And we have Chet from Mesquite on the line. Hello, Chet. Hello. You think you're so smart? Hello. Why are you always talking about drugs and? And niggers and, and 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 homos and Jews. Isn't there anything else to talk about? You know what I hate, Chet? I hate people who call me up and tell me what they don't want to talk about. You don't want to talk about blacks and gays. Then why do you bring them up in the first place, huh? Sounds to me like you like talking about them. If you don't want to talk about them, then tell me what you want to talk about or get off the phone. So why don't you start telling the truth, Barry? About what? You know, people behind your show, the people who pay the bills. Talking about the sponsors now. Don't you act dumb with me. What kind of a name is Chet? The whole thing started out a bit shaky. Last summer, I visited Germany. Never had been there. Wanted to take a look at Hitler's homeland. Are you familiar with Adolf Hitler, Chet? I'm familiar with Adolf Hitler. I bet you are. I decided to visit the remains of a concentration camp on the outskirts of Munich. Dachau. You join a tour group, go out by bus. Everyone gets out at the gates. It's rather chilling. A sign over the gate says... Arbeit macht frei. It means work will make you free. Something the Nazis told their prisoners. You still listening to me, Chet? I'm counting your lies. Good. I want to make sure you're hearing them anyway. So here I am walking around this concentration camp, and I see something on the ground. I picked it up. Guess what I found, Chet? A tiny star of David. Very old. Who knows? It might have belonged to one of the prisoners of the camp. Maybe a small boy torn from his parents as they were dragged off to the slaughterhouse. I kept that Star of David. I know I shouldn't have, but I did. I keep it right here on my console. I like to hold it sometimes. In fact, well, uh, I'm holding it right now. I like to hold it in my hand to give me courage. Maybe some of the courage that that small boy had as he faced unspeakable evil can enter me as I face the trials in my own life. As I face the cowardly and the narrow-minded, the bitter, bigoted people who hide behind anonymous phone calls full of hatred and poisonous bile. The gutless, spineless people like you, Chet, who make me puke. Keep talking, Jew boy. Life is short. And... Uh, spoiler for anybody who hasn't seen the damn movie yet, but you well, should. it's been around for a while, um, so right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, at the, at the time, Howard Stern kind of griped that you know they, they stole my life, but uh, <laughs> uh-huh. n- okay, that's they stole your life for about the first act of the movie, yeah, maybe uh-huh. Howard. But other than that, like Howard yeah, Stern the, was the, the first shock jock, shock shock, right. shock shock ever, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. And, and 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 I mean, Stern would you know, he, yeah, he's had his political moments, mm-hmm. but he wasn't constantly political like Alan Burr. Yeah. and um. Oh, who specifically was assassinated by uh, the Order is the name of that particular white supremacist group. So let's um, just fucking say who they are. Yeah, right, right. 
so that's what I'm saying. Is that like, I mean, there were established groups with known names yes. in the '80s. Like, we think now we think of we think of some of these groups that we hear about now, like the Proud, Proud Boys. Boys and a few percenters and all these assholes. Yeah, right. And we think, well, they were never this organized before. Yes, they yes, were. were. There was the order. There was there were there were, um, and sometimes sometimes just fans of these bands. Yeah. Uh, that would you know? I mean, the Doc Martin boots became part of their uniform. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, and and Doc Martens had to live that down for a long time and fight against it and try to like you know how did we become because they make a good stomping boot exactly they make a good yeah work boot and because they make a good work boot these people who want who who want to have a lethal weapon um that it doesn't even need to be concealed. I mean, those boots worked for what skinheads wanted them to use for them. I mean, they were. Excuse me. You could you could do some damage with them, and they did uh, to the point that there was even there was same as same as uh, you know um, within within um, well, like if you ever saw it, totally off topic, but not totally <laughs> the movie Cruising with Al Pacino mm-hmm. for uh, for for gay people know about this, but for people who who have not heard of this, uh, the hanky code, like the handkerchiefs, the the bandanas that you keep in your left pocket or your right pocket, and the color of it is a code, and it means things, right, within the gay community. And um, uh, skinheads, particularly, had different color shoelaces for their Doc Martens. Mm. And those, the color of your laces meant that you had murdered a black person. Mm. You had murdered a police officer. You had, you had, there, there was there was an array of different things that you would, they would send these. I mean, the term now we use is dog whistle. Right, 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 right. And there were, but even again, not a new thing. There were there were these, these skinhead groups had ways of telling each other and bragging to each other. Mm-hmm. Here's what I've done, and it was, and it's within that. I think I feel, and I don't know that I don't think it was entirely reaction to only them, but I have to because I I mean I I was in high school then and I was terrified. Mm-hmm. Um, I was terrified for friends of mine. Um, I was actually the only uh, my closest friends in high school. I was the only white kid with both parents at home. Wow! Everybody else was either child of divorce or living with one parent, or they were half white or not white at all. Or like like, like most, I was I was the one beaver cleaver <laughs> of my friend group of the like the kind of still nuclear family person. Mm-hmm. And that's you know, and and Reagan would try to present the eighties as being another nineteen fifties. Right. But when I looked around my friends, that's not what I saw. I saw a Benetton ad. Mm-hmm. Right. And for people who don't need go Google Benetton ads from the eighties <laughs> if you don't know what I mean. Like Benetton like prided itself on diversity and that was part of their initial uh-huh message was a sort of globalistic thing which is also part of what what the alt-right and the um uh white supremacists hate you have repeatedly criticized the the vice president for not specifically calling out antifa and other left-wing extremist groups but are you willing tonight to condemn white supremacists and militia groups and to say that they need to stand down and not add to the violence in a number of these cities as we saw in Kenosha and as we've seen in Portland. Sure, Are you I'm prepared to, to do specifically that, do it? Well, I, go would ahead, say, I would say almost everything I see is from the left wing. Not from the right so wing. So what are you? What are you, you? What are you saying? I'm, I'm willing to do anything. I want to see well, peace. Then do it, sir. Say I'm, it. Do it. Say it. Do you want to call them? What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a white name. White supremacists and white right like supremacists and right supremacists. Stand back and stand by.
can I do for you today? Okay, I have this uh, problem, this very delicate matter. I have a friend of mine who wants to immigrate to South Africa. Yes, of course. I can certainly help him do that. Oh, sure. Uh, but I want you to talk him out of it. Talk him out of it? Uh, yeah. Whatever for? Well, uh, you see, this is such a bad time for him to go to South Africa. I mean, with all the trouble and everything, okay? Oh, look, why don't you ask your friend to come back later in the week? We can sit down. He's, no, he's here. He's here. He's here? Yeah, he's here now. Where? Alphonse! Alphonse! How you doing? I think there must be some mistake. Say what? Sir, listen to your friend here. He knows what he's talking about. I don't think you really want to go to South Africa. Why not? Because you're black. You are. He is. Of course I'm black. That's why I want to go to South Africa. To join up with my oppressed brothers. To take up the struggle against the tyranny of the racist, fascist, white minority regime. Fascist white regime. One man, one vote. One man, one vote. Free South Africa, you dumb son of a bitch. You dumb son of a bitch. I definitely want to get back to those 80s films we were talking about. But when you were talking about, um, you know, uh, uh, a lot of the, you know, just white supremacy groups and the young people, two other movies came to mind. Actually, movies from the mid '90s: um, John Singleton's *Higher Learning* and *American History X*. Derek Vineyard was released from Chino early this morning. Hey, man, how you doing? Too big to give me a hug? Oh, it's good to see you. Check this out, man. When'd you get that? What? Well, I came to talk about Danny. He's headed right where you are. What's wrong with you? Let the kid alone. He thinks the joint mess with your mind. Did. I'm asking you to do whatever's in your power. You know what you're going to do? You're going to get me shot by a bunch of white boys. I am out, and Danny is out too. And if you come near my family again, I will feed you your heart. What's happening, Dad? I don't think you realize what's been going on here. We are ten times what we were. They're after you, man. They're going to come for me. They're going to come for me. There ain't nothing I can do. Hey, Danny! Get it! Those are two movies which kind of ask the question, for those who may not be aware of them, American History X starred uh, 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 um, Edward Norton and uh, in this story about a white supremacist who goes to prison and he gets out and he's for all his purposes rehabilitated he wakes up, sees the error of his ways and now he has to get his younger brother Edward Furlong out of that life, you know, and getting his younger brother out of that life might cost him his own. <laughs> That's how dangerous it is. And and Higher Learning, which I think is an underrated John Singleton gem. Um, I remember how, when I first saw that film, theatrically, I was amazed at how across the board it was. I mean, most of John Singleton's films up to that time had been, well, I think Higher Learning might have been his, sec- his second film. But I think a lot of people expected Boys in the Hood 2. But higher learning covered a much broader category of, you know, the first year in college and it got into racism within the African-American community. Uh, you, know, you know, blacks on black racism. Um, it got into interracial dating. And the Michael Rappaport character ends up being one of yeah. the most intriguing ones. And the whole idea is how does this mostly decent, normal guy end up falling in with this group of skinheads? 
and ends up perpetuating this horrible act by the end of the film. Uh, I thought that was a fascinating and fairly decent example of how a sense, accurate or not, of alienation and feeling marginalized and what have you can make you prime ground, prime soil, prime fodder for that horrible doctrine. Uh, so I, I definitely think those two films were films that also were well aware of what was going on in society at the time. But anyway, so uh, going back, um, okay, we talked about talk radio a little bit. How about we talked about the two Costa Gavras Joe Esterhaus movies, uh, Betrayed, which was released in August 88, and Music Box, which was released in December 89. And actually, Music Box is probably my favorite Costa Gavras film. Missing would be a close second. It is definitely my favorite Joe Esterhaus film. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, I was blown away when I first saw that. So, I mean, and, and, and I think it's important to to mention that the background of both the director, Costa Gavras, and the screenwriter, Joe Esterhaus. Obviously, Joe Esterhaus would become famous for movies like Jagged Edge and Basic Instinct and even uh, Showgirls, you know. <laughs> Showgirls. <laughs> you know, but before those, you know, uh, he was definitely, uh, I mean, Jagged Edge is badass. And Basic Instinct is a fascinating film, too, and I still love it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still think that uh, Betrayed and, and, and Music Box are his two best scripted films. And I think it's important to remember, which I didn't know until recently, I mean, I knew that Music Box was partially inspired by some real stuff. Uh, John John Demyon. Right, exactly. Um, yes. And I know I never pronounced that man's name properly. What I didn't know was that part of it was inspired, is semi-autobiographical too, and that uh, Esterhaz had discovered in his mid-40s that his father uh, had actually hidden his wartime involvement in Hungary's Nazi fascist movement. He was a member of the Arrow Cross Party, and his father burned books and wrote all kinds of anti-Semitic shit. And after Esterhaz discovered this, he broke off all contact with his father. Even when his father died, he never, never, ever reconciled. You know, uh, with his father, he just um, he was so appalled by that what his father had done, and so uh, that whole premise in music box is you have a hungry uh, excuse me a hungry god can't even talk hungarian american <laughs> immigrant played by the always awesome armin Mueller stahl and he has a daughter jessica lang who is an attorney and one day her father is accused of being um a war criminal a world war ii war criminal and she just doesn't believe it because she's always known her father as this decent guy and as the story progresses she she decides to defend him and as the story progresses, more and more evidence arises to show that she may be wrong and that her father may have been involved in a lot of horrible stuff. United States of America versus Michael J. Laszlo. It's a mistake. You got the wrong Michael J. Laszlo. Like you we do. That's not your grandpa. I didn't kill anybody or hurt anybody. He wants me to represent him. You're going to need all the help you can get. I need to know everything. I've spent my whole life trying to forget what I saw. I have to remember. My father is simply an innocent man who is unjustly accused. Is this the man that you knew as Mishka? They're accusing you of horrible things, Papa. It's not me. You've got the wrong man. Is this the man? It's not me. I didn't do this. 
weren't you a farmer, Papa? You can't tell me if you don't have any doubts about your father. It's not me! It's not me! Well, what were you then? And I think that's another, man, uh, serious example of how we in America particularly, I mean, human beings in general in America particularly, we love to not know shit. Right. <laughs> you know, we would much rather often live in a comfortable lie than the uncomfortable truth. You know, and, and I think that what happened on January 6th, in some respects, not taking any guilt away from any of the parties involved or those who incited them. But I do think that part of the reason it happened, D.L. Hughley once said, and I think I've mentioned this before, uh, the name of the stand-up special was Shocked and Appalled. And he said, in order to be shocked and appalled, you actually have to believe that the world is other than you thought it was. And um, I think that's true. I think what happened on January 6th was disgusting and it was abhorrent but there's a part of me that says yeah no shit look at what happened in wisconsin uh earlier you know where we had the uh supremacists who are planning on kidnapping uh, um christian whitmer and putting her on trial and executing her and that was just warm up i mean way back then i knew i fucking knew that come election time these people were going to coalesce into one solid movement and try to do something. Uh, I think a part of me knew that Trump would be involved. I didn't think that explicitly involved. But, you know, that whole thing during the debate where, you know, with the Proud Boys and the others where he said, you know, stand down and stand, stand, by, and stand by. That bullshit. I was like, what? And a bunch of people just tried to blow it off. I mean... Obviously, his supporters said, nah, it doesn't mean anything. And those who were not Trump supporters, I think, didn't want to admit that it was as... I mean, they, they said it was horrible, but I don't think they wanted to admit that it was as solid and explicit as it actually was. I think a lot of us were still looking at the, no, nah, he's not that crazy uh, with that that mindset. But no, it was. So... And, and this is a horrible thing to say, a horrible thing to say, but I've mentioned this to a few other people. I think I am not condoning violence in any sense of the way from anyone, be they on the left or the right or whatever. But I honestly think had not some of the riots occurred last year um, in regards to George Floyd, and granted, there's a difference between those who were marching peacefully and those who went apeshit and started burning shit. There's a big difference between the two. But had that not happened, I think even more supremacist groups would have been even more emboldened and what happened on January 6th might have happened even sooner. Wow. You know, I think that sometimes, um, yeah, I think they totally, uh, this is a theory again, but just looking over the past year, and looking what had happened, you know, with Gretchen Whitmer and that attempted kidnapping and all the dog whistles that Trump had sent out, I honestly think that we would have seen more local, state, and federal disruptions, to put it mildly, maybe around Election Day, you know, um, than, than we actually saw. I think it would have been worse, but sometimes when someone stands up and says, you want to fuck with me? Come and fuck with me. 
<laughs> well, yeah, yep. I'll, I'll be honest. I expected after after the whole after the summer, I expected election day to be basically. I didn't expect January sixth on January sixth, but I did expect it on November second. Yeah, yeah, I guess. And when it didn't happen, then I kind of figured, okay, okay we're well, cool. We, we, yeah. yeah, I would say yeah. yeah, that's a perfect way of putting it. Yeah, uh, yeah, but um, and I think that I think it would have happened on uh, back during election day had not. Like I said, not condoning any kind of violence, but I think sometimes, and I've used this phrase before, sometimes the only language some people understand is an ass whooping. Right. You know, and sometimes you have to be bilingual. <laughs> and I think that what happened last year was kind of a message that, from a lot of people, and not just from black folks, but I mean, there were you know everybody, white folks and and and, and Jewish folks and, and Muslims and, and atheists. Everybody was marching together. There was this meme I saw, where <laughs> it, it, it were, there were like these Wiccans, and 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 they said, "You have to be you have to be a bad president when you get Christians, Jews, Muslims, atheists, and witches, and, you know, Satanists and, and, and Satan right. all marching together against you." <laughs> <laughs> and that's so true, you know, and I think that that administration has stirred up such counter um, counter racism. I mean, that's what was going on was so racist and there were so many dog whistles and plain outright signals sent out that I think a lot of people responded, some in peaceful marches and some in not so peaceful marches. And I like I said, I don't want to condone anything, but I honestly think that the non-peaceful stuff made some people reconsider what might have been a plan for election day. It's, it's a theory anyway. Yeah, that, so, and that's something that people you. might say, okay, I've had enough. And they might tune out on this particular podcast episode right. and that's fine. <laughs> but like I said, on the eighth day, free will was created. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, going back to some of our films, um, let's talk about betrayed in music box. Um, I mean, I think it's interesting that director Costa Gavras, who was also known for very political films like Z and Missing, which would be my close second favorite Costa Gavras film, Missing. Um, but uh, even he, you know, he grew up in Greece. Um, his father during World War II was a member of the pro-Soviet um, Greek resistance. And uh, because his father was a communist uh, after the war, Costa uh, Gavras was not able to attend university in Greece. He was not able to get a visa to the United States. So he grew up in a very political frame of mind, and that just came out in his films. So for me, it's not surprising that some of his most known films would be movies like Z and um, Missing and, and, and Betrayed in Music Box. Uh, so you want to anything you want to throw in about, the, about those two films in particular? I had forgotten this about Missing. I, had, I mean, not Missing, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, music Box, um, I'd kind of forgotten that from our initial discussion yeah. because that's another one that um, the the true story angle of it both, I mean, I honestly didn't know as much about Esther House's and, you know, personal connection to that as you, as you just illuminated. Um, but I was in high school in Cleveland when John Demyanyuk was during the struggle for him to be extradited. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, in the movie, it happens within the first 10, 15 minutes. Uh-huh. Uh, in real life, that went on for yeah, months. Yeah, a long time. I think, even a couple of, I think even a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point, and I remember watching the news one night with my dad. And, I mean, I, I'm 
looking at the, they said he was i want to say did they say he was ivan the terrible uh no they uh, no. uh, uh they might but he was like a, he was like a concentration camp guard yeah he was and they they kept showing this photo of this they kept showing, they only had one clear photo of of oh, the no. person they were accusing uh, okay, him of no. being okay no he was um uh, accused of being ivan the terrible ivan the terrible right, right. but um it, it um he was not him but he right. was, you know. But he was still he was a concentration camp. Yeah, he was guard. part of what they called the um, Troniki, which were mm-hmm. uh, like uh, Eastern European collaborators, you know, who um, uh, worked for the Nazis in the camps. But uh, he was acu- he was misidentified as being Ivan the Terrible. Yeah. But I just, I mean, I remember, I remember my dad saying, uh, "I don't know if he's Ivan the Terrible, but he's a, he was a Nazi, damn sure." As my name was Bob Delaney. Exactly. There you go. Like my yeah. yeah, and this was after like a year of it. Like I mean, we this this is you know we also maybe people maybe think now that that you know there were no trials being played out in the media until O.J. Simpson. Oh, uh, actually, I'm sorry. <laughs> I actually just looked up um, Demnyuk. Is that how you pronounce his name? Dem Demnyuk. Demnyuk. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. no, it said um, based on eyewitness testimony by Holocaust survivors in Israel, he was identified as Ivan the Terrible. And he was extradited to Israel in 1986 for trial. But no, he he was Ivan the Terrible. Okay, all right. Okay, all right. All right. So it's, yeah, and that's that's the thing. Is like, I mean, I'm I might not have that. I mean, I wonder sometimes if that movie resonated with me because I had already spent several years watching right. watching his extradition on local news, right. not just on exactly. national news. I mean, since it was since it was part of a Cleveland local story. Uh-huh. You know, it was it was oftentimes the top story three nights out of the week. Mm. Um, so one, it just stuck with me because it's a hell of a story. I mean, it's a hell of a movie. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's a great just, movie. It's period. Well made. Yeah. But yeah, but two, it was also just that much more immediate for me, where it felt like Jesus Christ, this guy is a couple towns away. Mm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So how many more are there that we don't know about? Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I see, you know. Which is another thing that made me scared about the skinheads. Like, how do you, like, the, like there, are, there are kids my own age, in my own community, who look at this guy and go, "He's being railroaded. That's unfair." Right, He's right. A patriot. Yeah. So, and who the fuck are those kids? Yeah. But they were out there, um, and that's you know that's what made me scared for my friends. And also, while we're focusing, um, another another thing that that encouraged white supremacy against i mean there, there was a lot of the violence in the 80s street violence was also against asians because if you remember back then there was i mean now we talk about china taking over the world in the 80s it was japan right exactly yep right yep. japan was the economic the economic enemy uh, the, yeah i mean we we have we have we have um michael crichton's rising mm-hmm. sun to sort of address that but you know there was also the movie gung ho with michael keaton yeah. Uh, about about basically a Detroit auto plant shutting down to move to Japan, mm-hmm. and there was I mean there was there was a lot of anti Asian feeling specifically over, um, moreover, American jobs going to now we say China back then it was Japan. Well, in and a way, was, you know, even Ridley Scott's Black Rain kind of touches on that too. Right, right, right. Oh, yeah. I'm glad you brought that. Yeah, yeah I forgot about that. Yeah, so was, there was there was there was an anti Asian. Uh, tone in the 80s that was all specifically over over jobs going mm-hmm. overseas mm-hmm. um and that's another thing that people act like it's a new thing and they act like it's china yeah. and walmart nah it was it was the big three automakers yep. in the 80s 
you know, closing down plants all over the Midwest and, and in, you know, in, in your state, in Pennsylvania, in my oh, state, God, in yes. Ohio, in, in Michigan, you know, and, and, um, and that was something that not only, you know, we, we talk about white supremacy, but also, I mean, auto workers were, were white, were black, were Latino. Mm-hmm. So it, it also ginned up, um, interracial racism, not Very just white supremacy. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, and uh, which is something that I, don't, I mean, the the, only, the closest any movie ever came to addressing that was was Blue Collar with Richard yeah, Pryor uh, and Harvey Keitel. You know, it's, it's but, kind of funny. I, you know, I, I hate to say this because I, I don't mean to minimalize it, mm-hmm. but I would say Blue Collar and Alienation. <laughs> right, yeah, right, right, right. Kind of the same thing. Uh, just yeah. because the racists in that movie are they're all human. James Caan's partner at the beginning of the movie is a black guy. You know. And I think the, the whole neat thing there is that um, racism knows no race. <laughs> right. You know, right. it's just uh, like um, I think it was a comedian who uh, um, had once said, you know, my father uh, was a racist and uh, the race he hated the most was the humans. Uh, you know? <laughs> and I think to a certain degree, whether it's the Dr. Seuss story about, you know, the, the people with the stars on their bellies and those who didn't have stars mm-hmm. on their bellies um, – that there's just a sense of the other, you know, um, and we will make that other whatever is most convenient at that particular time to uh, justify our own sense of insecurity or racism or whatever or superiority or supremacy or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And we specifically as far as Japan and the auto industry, we blamed them for taking the jobs. but We didn't blame the American or the people who were angriest would blame the Japanese or Asians in general, uh, sooner than they would blame uh, the CEO of Ford right. or of GM. I mean, right? there's even a line in the Crichton novel, Rising Sun, and it's in the film too, where a Japanese executive says, if you don't want Japan to buy it, well, don't sell it. Right. You know, but the whole idea is that you just had a lot of Americans uh, inspired by greed, uh, you know, who wanted to, hey, this is a chance for me to cash out. I don't give a shit. If a bunch of people working under me are going to suffer, I can cash out. I can make my mint, you know, and Japan or whoever can take the fall for it, you know. Yeah. And f- film-wise, the, the person who most, I mean, at the, at the time, yet again, for people who, you know, under 40 might think that, that uh, 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 I was about to say Roger Moore, Michael Moore, <laughs> um, began. <laughs> Big difference. Began, right, began, right. Oh, that'd be awesome if Michael, Michael Moore did a Moore's Bond movie. James Bond. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, there's this there's this sense that you know Michael Moore didn't come into being. I mean, for younger people, I guess there's this sense that he didn't come into being until until George H. W. Bush. Right. Uh, I'm sorry, George W. Bush, yeah. but he actually came into being under George H. W. Mm-hmm. Bush. His you know Michael Moore's first feature, Roger oh, and Me, right. dealt with not blaming. The Chinese, but in directly trying to contact the the CEOs of of uh, well, specifically Roger uh, Roger Smith, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, um, about closing a plant in Flint, Michigan. Like that was that was another filmic attempt to combat racism and just basically say, let's talk to the person who put out the for sale sign. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, there, there weren't there weren't the the auto industry and the anti-Asian vibe was not as addressed in the 80s as it, the, I feel like pop culture 
and the zeitgeist in general did not resist the feelings against Japan in the 80s the way some now um, call into question anti-Asian feelings against the Chinese. Hmm. I feel I feel I feel like we've learned a bit from that mistake. Maybe, maybe. Um and um it well some of us. Maybe I'll say not not, not all of us. <laughs> <laughs> um but I just feel like I think I feel like we're more aware of it now. Okay. Now, um, okay, just um, I hope. Maybe I'm being, maybe I'm being foolishly optimistic. Okay. I well, critic, I mean, I would be inclined to agree with you. Uh although what about in like the days after 9/11? You know, where suddenly the bad guy became anyone with even an Arabic-sounding name. I mean, I remember, like, here, I live in South Philly, and uh, I remember when Bob, you know, uh, came to visit, and he was amazed. Uh, we went to Walmart one day, and he was like, wow, um, I thought L.A. was diverse. <laughs> he said, we were in, in the store for, like, 10 or 15 minutes before I heard anybody speak English. Oh, wow. You know, and, and I don't notice it because I'm always there, but right here in South Philly, I mean, I remember years ago, you would go up, there's a street uh, uh, that called 7th Street. I'm between 6th and 7th Street uh, where I live. And there's a street called 7th Street, which used to back in the 60s and 70s and early 80s, was a big kind of outdoor mall of shops and restaurants and, and what have you and, and, and street vendors and, and all that kind of thing. Uh, 9th Street uh, is more popular for that today. And always been, that's the street that Rocky is jogging down in the okay. first movie. That's 9th Street. But 7th Street used to have something like that of a reputation back in the day. And now, when you go up there, the various mom-and-pop shops on the corner, the delis, the pharmacies, the, the restaurants, you see signs, the banks. You have signs that are in um, English, Vietnamese, Spanish, um, um, uh, 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 sometimes Russian, <laughs> you know, and... Um, and, and um, and 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 Spanish, uh, what is it? Spanish, yeah. But you have like five different languages uh, on the menus, and um, that's kind of the norm. Um, and I remember in the days after nine eleven, it was heartbreaking. Where I mean, there were guys, there were people I would just normally see every day. I go to get my newspaper, I go to get some milk or whatever, store around the corner, um, and you pass guys on the street, you know, Arab guys, and you would just wave and say, "Hey, how you doing today?" And I remember for weeks after nine eleven. A lot of those guys were not wearing their headpieces mm. because they were just being uh, assaulted. And people were throwing bricks through their windows and all this kind of stuff. You know, just that whole idea of finding an other to blame your problems on. I mean, I think that's just a human nature thing. And every few years we find a convenient other to unload that shit on but i think that is at the core of that whole supremacist movement and i think that somebody like donald trump just tapped into that he is very well aware of it as were we all but i think a lot of people just decided to ignore it and not take it as seriously as it was and like, and like we said it was, it's always been there it's it's kind of like i remember you know when uh, the black lives matter marches were going on and a lot of people as soon as you saw a black lives matter march some people said oh anti-police right and it's like no right. i mean this whole thing about holding police accountable and saying that some police are racist i mean it's like if uh, we hold 
teachers accountable. You know, just because you have some teachers, uh, most of whom have some Hallmark or Lifetime movie made about them, who slept with their students, you know, you don't automatically say that because we want to hold these accountable and bring them to justice that you're being anti-teacher, you know, or that if you have some doctor who was uh, stealing drugs and you want to bring them to, to, to hold account, account, to account, you don't say we're being anti-doctor, but as soon as you say, no, there are some police who may not be entirely on the up and up, suddenly we're being anti-police, <coughs> you know, and, um, uh, shit, got my trans off there. And, and, uh, <laughs> and, and another thing I'll chime in about, about, uh, about the recently passed administration compared to others, you know, President Reagan never uh, disparaged Japan as a nation f- for taking our oil industry, mm-hmm. right? Um, or any other nation. Mm-hmm. Um, George W. Bush, I remember being really moved. I mean, I didn't vote for him, but I remember being proud of him in the moment uh, shortly after 9-11 where he... Because, I mean, he said it more than once, but he, I mean, he tried to remind Americans that, you know, your Muslim neighbors didn't do this. Yeah, I, I, and I remember he, that. And yep. I, I specifically remember him saying that, you know, the the people who did do this, and this is the part, I get a little choked up even when I think about this. And he's not even my president, but he's, well, he's, yeah, he's my president. Right. But he's, I mean, I didn't vote for, for, yeah. for a guy that, exactly, for, you know, but I mean, um, for, for me, one of his finest moments uh, was when he said that the people who perpetrated 9-11 blaspheme Allah. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yep. That was, and that's what a president should that's what a president fucking do. well do. And it was a great moment for him. And that's, you know... It, it, he, Which, keeping he, in mind, at the same time this was going on, is when future uh, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue resident, I've never referred to him as the P, the P word in the past four right. years, and I'm not going to start now. <laughs> um this is this exact same time where he claimed to have seen Muslims in Newark right. cheering yes. the destruction yes. of yeah exactly so yeah. right then yeah. and there uh, I'm right. sorry continue please no it, so so yeah it, it um, versus I mean even on Trump's last day he was still what did he call it the China virus yeah yeah uh-huh. not my fault yep. right and and even and one that constant use of that phrase and two the man doesn't even just say china virus he says china virus right exactly. he throws that right he throws that fucking cartoony that ching chong ching ching yeah yeah exactly. exactly what it is yep yeah so i mean and this is this is so when 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 if people want to say we're being you know typical lefty libs or whatever remind let me point out my voice just choked up speaking proudly about president bush bush exactly yeah, and a man again, a man I didn't vote for, but he had, you know, he had in in a moment, in a wartime moment, he did he he said what needed to be said. Exactly. Uh, Reagan during economic wartime moment, I don't know if we, well, I shouldn't call it an economic war. You know, I, know. I, I, <laughs> but I, think, I mean, a moment where Reagan could have gen- I think the yeah economic okay. war Thank is pretty you. accurate. I mean, yeah. that was pretty so, much the theme of Rising Sun, economic warfare. Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, Reagan never scapegoated Japan or any other country uh, for America's finance. I'm sure maybe somebody's actually be able to slap me with this quote now and find a time where Reagan did blame another country on any American financial trouble. But I, 
I don't recall yeah. it. I would be very surprised to see it. Yeah, same here. And even if, it, even if it is out there, I imagine it, what I... What I well, it certainly wasn't can, apocryphal enough to be remembered by many years later. This is what answer. I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 um, yeah. I just I don't I don't. If it's out there, if 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 it's out there, I don't imagine Reagan using it to target an entire, as you were saying earlier, other. Yeah, yeah. And that's the big difference. That's what I mean. In 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 the eighties, the movies we're talking about dealt with a hatred of another that was within the American people, mm-hmm. but it wasn't exploited by the halls of power. Mm-hmm. And that's what's different right now, and that's why we kind of have to address, uh, well, right now, right and now. basically how 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 we're going to respond to it as a nation, how we're going to respond to it as... Um, as an art, as it, what the artistic reaction is going to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're already seeing it in in the movies that are being greenlit. In yeah. you know, Judas and the Black Messiah, mm-hmm. in in um, uh, Queen and Slim, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it, so I mean, it's the the reaction is already there. Yeah. Um, but oh, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I would be surprised if we don't start seeing some movies too. Instead of about you know, now let's show. M- a more ranging diversity of of African Americans and of Black Americans and of, of non white people, mm-hmm. uh, the BIPOC community is the the, the term I'm hearing mm-hmm. more and more now. Um, which I wonder where that when that phrase was coined. For all I know, it's been out there for ten years. Maybe I just heard it recently. Too, yeah, right? same here. Um, but. Um, Oh, by the way, I'm sorry. It just yes, dawned on please. me something I was talking about earlier, and I said, boy, what were, I didn't remember my train of thought, but you just oh, brought me mm-hmm. back to it. When we were talking about, you were talking about, um, um, like, abuses within the system and certain movies bringing these to the fore, movies like Queen and Slim, and it suddenly dawned on me what the, the, the train of thought I was going down that I lost because I got sidetracked. Um, we were talking about how the artistic community... And, you know, I, I have to say, uh, it reminds me of a speech that George Clooney gave years ago. I think it might have been when he won an Oscar uh, for um, uh, uh, Syriana. Um, and he had said, you know, a lot of people level a lot of accusations against the artistic community. You know, maybe some of them are warranted. But he said, I'm proud to be a part of a group that um, has always been at the forefront of social change. And, and, and you know, and, and just bringing certain things that need to be said. And that's true. I mean, from... Jesus, a movie like Imitation of Life to some uh, guest who's coming to dinner to Planet of the Apes, you know, to do the right thing. Um, And and even in music, you know, I remember um, watching a documentary and Pam Greer was talking about the 70s, the late 60s and early 70s, talking about music and film. And she was saying how, I mean, look at just music and how Jimi Hendrix um, made it okay for black people to love rock and not be called Uncle Tom and for white people to love a black musician and not be called a nigger lover, you know. Uh, so the arts have always, you know, just been ahead of the game. And it's kind of like whenever you have people protesting bad police and they say this is new and this cancel culture and all this kind of stuff, I've often said, you know, this is not new. I mean, even we were talking about Pink Cadillac and about how it used humor to make it draw attention to certain serious items. I mean, you can go back as far as movies like Live and Let Die with Sheriff J.W. Pepper. You know, <laughs> and you had the whole thing about racist cops and the way they treat non-white people. 
there, there was a little message there, um, or even in a movie like White Lightning with Burt Reynolds, or or even in more serious movies like Serpico, you know, or Report to the Commissioner, they were talking about police corruption, you know, and police who were stepping outside the bounds of propriety and how they had to be held accountable. So for people who say that, you know, this is a left wing, uh, Antifa inspired, uh, liberal assault on you know, uh, grand, glorious America. No, uh, just like we were talking about the movie 1776, just like we were talking about the Three Stooges and Charlie Chaplin back in the, the 40s uh, and movies in the 80s and movies in the No, this has always been a part of America and people have always been protesting it. So get off that shit about this is some new cancel <laughs> culture crap. Uh, no, this is just um, the arch responding as they always have. And, and I'm proud that uh, to be a part of that group that um, draws attention to these things. Yeah. Um, and that's why I'm kind of, I'm, I'm really interested to see what we see, what kind of movies we see in the next five years. Very much so. Very much so. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Um, what's what's going to be greenlit? Um, well, it's kind of funny you should mention, I can't go into detail, but we were talking about Bob earlier and uh, there's a, a couple of things that I'm working on now. Um, I think I mentioned before that... Um, well, you and I have talked about how my, my my father was in the Black Panthers, you know, back in the 60s and 70s. And I'm currently working on a script that's sort of semi-autobiographical. You know, and that's a story I've been working on for the past 20 years. And I've been gathering information and doing outlines and stuff. And that's just something which in recent days, like within the past few years, has become more likely to get made. You know, so it's nice to see that... Um, the general uh, consensus. I mean, who'd have thought that, God, even two, three years ago, when football players were being criticized and lambasted and Trump was saying stuff like, fire those sons of bitches because they were kneeling. You know, who'd have thought that within a couple of years, you have the NFL who would actually get behind them, that you would log on to Amazon.com and there would be a big banner that said Black Lives Matter. Who would have thought that this movement would have become so mainstream that even corporate America realized how powerful it was. I mean, and that cities painted on the street in front exactly, of exactly, you know, so the White House and other places. Yep. So it's amazing yeah. to see how times change in a relatively, you know, sometimes in a, over a long period of time. Martin Luther King said, "The uh, moral arc of the universe is long, but I do believe that it eventually curves towards justice." You know, that is a 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 year thing and more. But other times you say, wow, this happened with this within the past two or three years. And that's amazing. So I do think that, um, and, and I guess if there is a single subject, we've kind of gone all, all over the map with this particular show, but I do think if there is a single thread that runs through it, it's that the creative arts have always had its ear to the rail in regards to what's going on. And my hope, my belief, is that it always will. Well, I guess that'll about do it. Um, so, um, thanks, man, for doing this. Thank you. Yeah, right. this has been good. So, uh, yeah. I'm, in the meantime, uh, until we meet again, I'm Craig Jamison of Gold Cottage Online. And I'm Jim Delaney from The Lunch Movie. And thanks for joining us here on The Movie Sneak. See you next time again, up in those cheap seats. Can you dig it? <laughs>